Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast, helping to improve the understanding and treatment of pain across the world through education, advice from experts in the field, personal stories from those living well with pain, and more. A modern approach to pain treatment, management, and education, while helping to bring the patient voice back to healthcare. This is the Modern Pain Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Mark Cardula. What is going on, everybody? It is Mark Cardula, lead faculty and CEO here at Modern Pain Care, where we make you the complete clinician. Coming at you for our next episode of the Modern Pain Podcast, where we're going to talk about lower extremity neurodynamics. We've had a series of neurodynamics, upper extremity neurodynamics, and now we're moving our way into the lower extremity, but we're going to talk about some dosing and some other topics. Um, but before we do that, let's welcome him in our co-host. How are you doing, Jared Hall? I'm doing well this morning, man. Uh, you know, other than uh, I mentioned to you, my my wife's car got stolen this week, but that's another topic for another time. And it it's all good because nobody was harmed in the uh, the thievery of the vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Another testament to some poor humans that are out there that are not doing good things. But uh, yeah, sorry to hear that, man. Not a, not a good way to have a, a end of your week, but uh, that's why we pay insurance companies. Hopefully, they'll come through for you and do. Or maybe the police will find it unscathed, but uh, you never know. I've had relatives have various issues with, and various amounts of success getting that back, but that's why we pay premiums and all that stuff on insurance companies, so hopefully that'll do its thing. But uh, been a busy week for us uh, this week at uh, Modern Pain Care. We've had our complete clinician. We've had a lot of our coaching calls, had some great discussions with our mentees. Um, folks are signing up for the uh, you know, Lifelong Learning Academy, which we got Nick Rolnick coming in this week. You want to tell folks a little bit about Nick, uh, Nicholas coming in and, and sharing some stuff about BFR, a passion of his, which we're excited to have him come in and talk about. Yeah, man. Uh, actually, I've known Nick for a long time. And, uh, you know, he, as I've known him, he's really become the expert on BFR training and that sort of stuff. And uh, BFR, it's it's something that's been around for a while, but it originated out of Japan, and, and Nick got introduced to it and really started going down the rabbit hole of the research. And, uh, you know, he's, he's become my go-to guy, so we decided to, to bring him on, and he's he's going to do a podcast episode with uh, you and I on uh, BFR as it relates to pain and exercise, and then uh, he's going to do the master class with us, uh, which is kind of going to be a general overview of BFR principles and, and, and setup and dosing and safety and contraindications and all that sort of stuff, and then we're going to get into a deep dive Q&A session about clinical applicability uh, with all of the members and Nick. And I think it's going to be really good because he's somebody that's pretty reasonable. He understands the research. He understands the value and, and, and when it is and is not useful. So I think it's going to be uh, I think it's going to be really valuable for everybody. And it's something that I use in clinic. Uh, now, I won't say all the time, but it's something that I use with a, a decent frequency. Yeah, I will say I have not adopted it yet. Not that I, and I, I'm excited for, for Nick to come in and share his expertise. I know he's got a, a possible surprise for our members, which I'm excited to hear about. But um, yeah, I, I've, I'm looking forward to it. It's kind of been one of those things, mainly out of just busy life, sheer probably intellectual laziness to not really do the deep dive on it that it needs to, to determine where it fits in my practice. But that's why we'll have Nick in to help us figure that all out and figure out where it might fit in your practice and uh, give him some, give us some clinical pearls. But anyway, before we drone on about that, Jared, I, this episode we left off last time talking about um, lower extremity neurodynamics and also talking about dosing. So we, we've gotten into you know some of the things around the upper extremity and you know diagnoses that that uh, sometimes can be looked at as very local tendinopathy or tissue issues that probably need a little bit more exploration and a little bit more clinical reasoning. And 
thorough examination incorporating neurodynamics to, to really determine what the totality of what's going on in that situation may be for each individual patient. What about lower extremity for you? Like what kind of things are you seeing from the lower extremity perspective when it comes to neurodynamics? Maybe some areas that, man, we usually traditionally before really incorporating neurodynamics might have just looked at it very peripherally, strictly without consideration. What, anything that comes to mind for you? Well, I mean, <clears throat> when I think about neurodynamics for the lower extremity, uh, it, it's it's always a piece of my examination for anybody that presents with uh, low back pain, hip pain, uh, posterior, lateral, or anterior thigh pain, knee pain, calf pain, ankle pain, foot pain, right? Because that is the path of all of the, the sciatic and the femoral nerves. And we know that lumbar spine related issues are they're, they're the most common musculoskeletal complaint that we deal with. Uh, so I always start from the spine and work, work away just to make sure that I'm not missing anything and try, try to be really consistent about that. And uh, a neurodynamic assessment uh, through both the slump and the straight leg raise test and potentially the femoral nerve tension test, they're pretty much always a part of uh, my evaluation process just because there are so many things um, that can present similarly from IT band-like type syndrome to lateral knee pain from maybe a neurological cause or, you know, you get the, I can't tell you, hundreds, literally hundreds of times I've probably gotten a referral that says hamstring strain <coughs> and it's somebody, excuse me, it's somebody that's been dealing with a hamstring strain for two years. It's like, well, I don't, I don't think your hamstring strain is hanging around for two years or, you know, your calf strain has been there for six months. Uh, so I, I think that it's just, uh, it, it's something that's always integrated into my assessment for the lower quarter. Yeah, I actually have two, two uh, uh, folks right now. I have a, a, strangely, a DPT student. Before we've gotten a hold of him and, and really got to talk about some of this clinical reasoning and stuff, but he's, I think he's a first year or second year, actually. But anyway, uh, you know, came in yesterday with, you know, low back, and he said, I also got this hamstring strain that I've had for two weeks. And I talked to him like, well, what's your, what's, what's your mechanism of injury? Well, I don't really have one. It just started. I'm like, okay, let's unpack that. So we had a little clinical teaching moment there as far as, you know, okay, what is that? You know, let's look big picture. And he's got like a 30 degree straight leg raise with, you know, kind of lights up with dorsiflexion. And then I also have some patients because uh, we work closely with a podiatry group. We have a podiatry program at uh, Midwestern University where I practice. And you know, frequently we'll get kind of the this thing, you know, the local foot specific treatments. They do amazing stuff there at the podiatry uh, clinic, and they're you know some great practitioners. But I often get their cases that it ain't it ain't happening with like very localized stuff. So I have a patient right now who she's got uh, you know burning symptoms in the heel, pain with uh, you know prolonged walking. She also got a history of low back pain with a discectomy, laminectomy in a two, three years ago, um, and they've been you know, doing everything you can think of for local treatment at the foot. Um, but again, you do some straight leg raise, you do, it's significantly limited on that side. She's got lumbar, you know, and she's a good example. Like I, she's like, gosh, she's not moving. She's also got a lot of the, whoever did her surgery did not educate her well. Maybe they tried and didn't, it just didn't sink in. So I'm not going to assume, because I know sometimes our perceptions of what happens uh, from an encounter isn't maybe the reality of it. but. She's just petrified to move her back. She's like, I can't rotate my back. I'm like, you can't rotate your back. And so we've been unpacking that a little bit, getting her confident in her back again. But 
you know, burning pain in the foot. And is it a back? Is it a foot? Man, she's got straight leg raise. Looks like it. So we just, I again, defaulted to let's load the back and see if it changes your foot. And lo and behold, her test retest of the hey, how does it feel walking? She does some, you know, a good dose of uh, repeated extensions and walking significantly better. As far as feels different, feels better. Um, so we've been kind of connecting the dots for her, and she's doing a lot better. She's going back to work uh, this week after, you know, an eight-month pretty debilitating, depressing. She's really come a long way just come from a psychological standpoint because she's had to unpack a lot of her work defines her, and that kind of was taken away from her. So she was, you know, struggling with that. But, yeah, I think I would echo what you said, Jared. Is, you know, straight leg raise slump. If anybody that's got lower extremity things, I think just due diligence. You know, you're, not only should your exam from a physical exam, but your questioning should be up the chain a little bit. Any history of low back issues for you? Any history of low back where you had some, you know, radiating into the leg? How about, you know, other symptoms you have? Because these folks with, like, uh, you know, Achilles pain, heel pain, you know, medial ankle pain, um, you know, posterior knee pain, you start unpacking these things and you start thoroughly questioning any symptoms going below, anything going up to you. We're all questioning all the way centrally to the spine. Currently are in the past symptoms, and you might find that, gosh, there's there's dots connecting here that that looks like there's a, a spotty referral of maybe a, you know what could be a neuropathic pain component of what they're dealing with. And just being thorough and not missing that stuff, and again, stuff we, we hammer to our mentees and the supercharge group, he's like, you got to um, be thorough and you have a process that's repeatable. But what, what's been your experience with kind of the thoroughness, not only in the physical exam, but also the, maybe the patient interview? Oh man, it's, it's, it's the ags and eases for sure. Right. I, I just like, I, I think that these are not focused on enough, but when you start really asking somebody, uh, what, what, what makes that hamstring strain worse? Oh, dude, when I sit, when I sit for 30 minutes, that hamstring strain really, really kills me. And it's like, well, that's, that's funny. You're, you're not using a hamstring and it's in a shortened and relaxed position and it starts hurting or that, that posterior knee pain, that, that Baker's cyst becomes incredibly full and crampy and pressure filled and like starts tingling a little bit when you sit for 30 minutes old, that, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like a Baker cyst, right? So you're really digging into this, the things that aggravate it or the things that ease it. Oh, you know, when I stand up and walk, when I've been standing and walking for a while, my, my hamstring strain or my, my calf strain feels a lot better. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me so much or, you know, vice versa. Right. So you, you start to see how symptoms are affected by activities <clears throat> And you can make a lot of sense. You can do a lot of sense making of, well, if this was a connective tissue, if this was a contractile tissue, it probably wouldn't be affected by this. And it, and oh, I'm I'm seeing that there's a difference in the lumbar spine position. I'm seeing that there's a difference in, you know, maybe disc loading, or I'm seeing that there's a difference in X, Y, and Z in their symptoms that doesn't necessarily add up to what that diagnosis is. And that's that's to me where it has to start is really diving a, a lot after you've after you've gone through you know ha hearing the person's story and after you've gone through you know kind of making a, a connection with them and letting them speak you start diving into some of those ags and eases and then kind of your severity and irritability right so some of the stuff from like the the maitland sins approach well how severe is this you know how long how how intense is it? You know, is it is it debilitating or is it just a little bit? How irritable is it? Does it does it get 
really pissed off with any amount of movement or load or does it take a while to get irritable do you have to load it a lot before it shows up you know what's the nature what does this feel like to you what is it is it crampy or is it a sharp pain or is it achy or is it kind of does it kind of burn does it sting is it tingly is it numb like you can get these words from people and you try not to lead them you try not to put words in their mouth right but you can get this kind of quality of uh, of what they're feeling that might lead you kind of away or towards uh, a certain thought process when you correlate that with everything else that you're getting from them. I would never take that in isolation, right? So you start asking all these questions and you get a really good idea of, well, you know, what, what the diagnosis was or what it says on the referral thing or what they think that they have isn't, isn't really jiving. And then that's going to lead you down a lot of your assessment from there, right? So you should, you should have your assessment dialed in to the things that you really want to look at before you ever put your hands on that person because you've done such a good job of, of getting that information from them and listening to them very intently. Yeah, you should feel like you've really exhausted all the questions you can ask just from an interview perspective where now it becomes, the, I need information that I can only ask through physical examinations uh, skills. Now, obviously, you're going to miss questions and you want to, you can, you know, the crazy thing is your interview can continue into the examination where, oh, yeah, I forgot this question. Let me pop that at you while I'm doing it. Um, and then you're right. I think the, the quality of the symptoms, like the, the, these patients that I'm seeing recently with some neurodynamic components, a lot, burning, stinging, uh, you know, ripping, where it's this just kind of sharp kind of line of, of, of discomfort that just doesn't always jive for, you know, the, the you know, typical tendinopathy or, or typical things. And again, it doesn't make its decision on its own because you've got to be thorough, like Jared said, that this, you know, one quality of symptoms report isn't going to make the diagnosis for you but if you start hearing got it's burning it's stinging it's kind of radiating down it's not really focal at that tendon and you can trace sensitivity when you're doing palpatory things that's why it's helpful that to do some nerve trunk palpations and determine sensitivity differences side to side on some of these things to to see if like this the things are lining up to really support a hypothesis that there's a neurodynamic component there but yeah, you, you got to keep that hypothesis, you know, hypothetical deductive that funnel wide initially, and your questioning should narrow it, and then your exam should at least, you know, keep some of those things in line. To at least minimum, you check the box. Yeah, it doesn't look like there's anything going on here. But um, remember, neurodynamics. The big mistake people make too is that they think if it doesn't reproduce their exact symptoms, it isn't positive. But if you that that's where if you see somebody's got like a 90 degree straight leg raise and on the affected extremity whether it be a heel posterior knee or whatever it's 45 doesn't really reproduce their exact symptoms of men it's significantly limited and their and or different sensory responses like where one's just a stretch the other one's like oh man it's burning down the back of my leg and my hamstring area um you know those are things where you think about hey there's a difference in range of motion there's a difference in resistance of that test there's a difference in sensory response to that test which would just again would make you think that hey, neurodynamics remain on the table. Again, those things, just the, that on its own, of course, doesn't really make the diagnosis itself, like we said. But yeah, it's, it's, it's looking broadly and, and not never zeroing in on the extremity. Because you're going to get prescriptions from physicians and well-respected physicians who, the podiatry folks, that's their bias and that's okay. I think they'd own it, that they look at things very much through a foot-centric way of diagnosing. And our job is to cast a wider net when things aren't working for that and that's where you should be thinking 
yes, this is the diagnosis that I'm getting, so this framing bias that you get, because you're going to get the diagnosis framed to you often by the physician, and then I always tell students, you know, heaven forbid you use your degree that you're spending a few bucks on and you're, you're, you're stressing your brains out and working your butts off to get, that you use your degree and determine, is that in fact what I'm seeing here with my expert eyes, with my good ortho, you know, musculoskeletal expertise that, you know, we hold as, as physiotherapists and, you know, chiropractors, other folks out there. Yeah, it's just, you know, make sure that it fits and not just, you know, zero, you're not treating the diagnosis until you validate it in clinic. Not that, because I, I can't tell you how many people, as I've already mentioned, post your knee pain, Jared said his hamstring strain and stuff. If you just treat diagnoses, you'll be, You'll be rubbing on sore spots that are, you know, something that, you know, sore there from a much more bigger picture issue that you're missing the boat on if you don't really, you know, have a consistent process that you're going through. Any other kind of clinical things you think would be worth folks thinking about or, or maybe pearls that you'd want to share for folks around <coughs> lower extremity, Jared? Uh, yeah, there, there's a couple things that, that I thought about when you were when you were talking, and one is... You know, when you're doing that, maybe that straight leg raise assessment or that that slump assessment, if the person that you're evaluating is lower irritability, this is why it's really important to keep irritability in mind. If there's somebody that their symptoms don't come on for, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 minutes or three hours of activity or whatever it is, right, or a long period of sitting and you do that straight leg raise or you do that slump test, you, you might not get a big symptom presentation, but you might get a difference in movement excursion side to side, right? Like you mentioned. And it's worth keeping in mind that you might not get the traditional positive test of recreation of their pain, but, excuse me, had to clear my throat having a little bit of allergies and stuff like that going on this morning, so I apologize. Uh, but if you maybe do something that exacerbates their symptoms a little bit within reason, right? So maybe this person says, ooh, if I stand up and if I bend backwards 10 times, it like lights my symptoms up, or if I stay standing for a while, well, maybe you might want to do one of their aggravating factors and then assess that test to see if your test is actually a little bit more positive once their symptoms are talking. Or if they say, oh, sitting gets it, you know, it's like, well, you save that slump test until the end and maybe you have them do a few repeated forward flexions and maybe you actually apply a little bit of external load as well, you know, to, to their back when they go into that slump position because it's low irritability. They've already told you they have to sit for 30 or 40 or 50 minutes before their symptoms come on. So you want to try to exacerbate their symptoms just a little bit, not a, not a ton, but just a little bit to actually see if that, that test that assesses the neurodynamic component is, is positive under, you know, the circumstances for which they usually have pain. And I, I, I consistently see uh, students not think that way, not recognize, oh, this is a lower irritability condition, because when, when things are highly irritable, it's super easy to see. You, you put any load on somebody on a, on a straight leg raise test and it just lights them up like crazy. And you're like, oh yeah, that's positive. That's really easy. But when it's a little bit more nuanced and somebody's maybe been dealing with this for a while and it's just gotten to the point where it's kind of residual neural sensitivity or you know a, an impaired ability to tolerate the, the, their normal amount of load that, that maybe a completely healthy nerve would, 
then you've got to be a little bit more um, specific and nuanced in how you go about doing those tests to get good, clear answers or to get better answers anyway. Yeah, and that's, again, knowing your patient, qualifying their symptoms. You know, that's where we use that symptom behavior model. And, and I've, I know I've been on social media recently saying you should not have two different evaluations. Like, to me, you open yourself up for massive diagnostic error. I mean, you need to have an evaluation that can, that can pivot and move to the unique human in front of you and not any preconceived, this is my pain evaluation, this is my normal evaluation, because again, but that's a whole other di discussion gets us frustrated. Maybe we'll have an episode on that, like do you need two evaluations in PT? But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's knowing that, hey, if I have low irritability, it gives me the green light to start kind of getting after some symptoms and, and bringing them out, because I know you know, oftentimes those folks have symptoms that they say, yeah, just, you know, if I sit for five minutes, I'm fine, doesn't really linger too much, or um, or they have a really easy, uh, easing factor that often is pretty easy. So you, you, you have, you know, some, some you know, slack they've given you to kind of play with their symptoms a little bit instead of the highly irritable folks where you're, not, you, one, probably not going to have much issue, you know, eliciting symptoms. And then some of these folks take, you know, static loads for 30, 40 minutes, like Jared said, before symptoms emerge. And then you may not be able to get to those in clinic too, but you can also have the patient test things at home in the presence of their symptoms. That's a frequent thing I'll do is like, hey, we, I don't have an hour for you to sit and find these symptoms or, or an hour for you to walk or things, but when they do occur, here's what I want you to do. And I want you to test some things for me. And most folks are like, oh yeah, I'm on board with that. I want to figure this out too. So if you kind of pose it like, hey, we're, we're, we're in this together, we're going to figure this out, um, but I need you to do some things for me to, to, to kind of help me guide my thinking on this. Uh, I haven't met any patients that have been, ah, no, I'm not doing that. That's, um, you know, ridiculous. I don't want to learn more about what's going on with me. Um, so, yeah, I think it's uh, it's one of those things where, you know, just knowing the patient and their unique presentation and knowing how much you have or don't have as far as leeway to start playing with symptoms. Um, but that's what makes clinic fun because everybody's different. Every patient that comes in your door is different in that respect oftentimes where, you know, one patient, you're really dancing gently around symptoms and, and moving just to edges of things. Other patients, like, let's get after it. Let's find it. Let's load this thing till we see what's going on. Um, I know I saw a social media post is like, if the patient's symptoms only get brought on with heavy loads, you're probably going to have to find a way to bring some heavy loads into their into their treatment or assessment even to, to figure out if you're making change or not. I mean, it, but we still get these folks just pumping like five-pound dumbbells around and thinking we're, we're, you know, and again, we've had a massive underdosing issue in our profession, which we'll probably talk about more as well. But um, yeah, that's, I think, I don't know if I have any other uh, tidbits to share on the neurodynamic front. How about you, Jared? Uh, I've got one thing, man. Uh, and we talked about this in the upper extremity neurodynamic uh, episodes, but it's, it's just how important it is to be consistent with how you actually conduct these neurodynamic assessments. And uh, you know, being very sequential <clears throat> in the components that you that you use. So for the straight leg raise test, for instance, I use the hip as the component, right? So you maximally dorsiflex and and all of that sort of stuff, and you hold the knee in extension, and then your movement uh, axis is the hip. So you're measuring hip flexion, and you always start with the non-involved side, so the patient can know what a normal test feels like. And then they can know what a non-normal test or what the test on the non-involved side feels like. So it's very purposeful and it's very sequential and it's uh, it's really repeatable, right? And then, you know, you can add in head components and you can add in different things. You can have them change uh, their head position. You can let off of their toe. And my favorite question to ask people when I'm doing a straight leg raise test 
and I, I let off their toe and I say, does that feel better? And they say, oh my God, that feels so much better. And I say, well, what's the only thing connecting your toe to your hip? Because I'm moving your hip right now and I let your toe go and all of a sudden it feels better. And that's a light bulb moment for people that are like, well, my hamstring doesn't go to my toe. I thought I had a hamstring strain. So this, then it becomes your test becomes the perfect teaching moment for that, for that person. And then um, I think it's important to recognize that a, a straight leg raise test uh, typically tests somebody more in anterior pelvic tilt or something more similar to standing upright or extension, whereas a slump test tests somebody in flexion. So if you have somebody that uh, flexion feels great for their symptoms and extension feels bad for their symptoms, a slump test might not be as, posit uh, as positive as you, as, as you think it might be because they're going into their position of relief and then you're testing their nerve there and it might not be as positive as you find them to be on a straight leg raise test or a straight leg raise test that's even biased towards a little bit more extension you could have a, a pillow underneath their their back biasing them towards more lumbar extension or you could you could do a straight leg raise with them lay, lying on their side where they're biased towards extension as well and you might get a totally different uh test result if you're biasing the lumbar spine towards or away whatever directional preference they might have it's good points very good points uh, yeah i think uh having that creativity in clinic and thinking of you know understanding that hey slump also loaded versus unloaded you don't have you know the person's mm -hmm. laying with unloaded spine versus sitting with loaded spine one obviously more biased towards extension one biased more towards flexion and then you can start playing with positioning spines in different positions as you're adding these tests and seeing does it change things and does it maybe bring out things that weren't there in, in certain, like Jared said, thinking about directional preference and things. Other thing, other uh, kind of pearls I would definitely recommend folks with lower extremity neurodegeneration, you need to know how to bias your posterior tibs, your your peroneal nerves, your, your sural nerve type things because, you know, sural nerve often traveling right along the Achilles uh, tendon, which can kind of, if you can bias that through, um, you know, dorsiflexion and uh, inversion and then your posterior tib, your dorsiflexion eversion, and then your peroneal plantar flexion inversions where you're kind of pre, you know, loading those those directions at the ankle and then lifting a straight leg raise up and seeing if you're finding any specific symptoms on that route. But that's where you start being able to, especially your plantar fasciitis with posterior tibial nerve. And then this patient I have right now who I spoke about, she's got what they call tarsal tunnel syndrome, which again, you know, posterior tib nerve kind of entrapped in that lateral or medial ankle. Um, I think it's more her spine that's got things going on, but I, she's got some definite posterior tib nerve sensitivity, which I can, that, that diagnosis doesn't, I don't think is a bad thing by any means, because I think it, it definitely talks about neural sensitivity there. I just think they, again, at the podiatry front, don't move much above the ankle to think, think through that whole reasoning process, which is fine. That's, uh, you know, that's where we can come in and help the team out and, and help folks, you know, most importantly, help patients. So... Anyway, so if, if this is something where, hey, you know, I'm, this is, if you're finding value in these episodes, uh, we've had some great feedback with the Clinical Pearl episodes uh, that we've been kind of focusing on. Um, this is exactly the stuff that we're focusing on in our uh, Complete Clinician Supercharged group as we're coaching folks in their practice. Jared and I are taking on a limited amount of folks um, to do coaching with to where you learn in your practice because I think Jared and I both would agree that weekend courses, online courses are fine, nothing wrong with them, but 
then what happens when you're in a clinic and you face a case that just doesn't make sense or you want to talk through these neurodynamics or issues like that, um, that's what that program's all about. So um, take, a, take a look at it. You can jump on a call with Jared or I and we can talk about to see where you're at in your practice, what, what problems you're having. We can give you some game plans of how you can move forward. And then if it makes sense and you feel like it's a good fit for you to, to, to work with us, we can talk about what that would look like um, to see if it's something that would help you in your practice. But we've, Jared and I have just come to the point where we realize that you know, if we're going to make the impact in people's practices, and you know, not all of us can go jump and move for a residency or fork over the cash for a for a fellowship or residency, which you know, it, you need some resources, you need some options to to sharpen your game. And we've had a, a great time with our mentees so far, um, really having some uh, fun conversations and had some good feedback so far. But hope if you want to. Uh, jump in and check it out uh, jump in modernpaincare.com slash supercharged and you can you can check out the program and jump on a call with Jared and I and we'll we'll go through it with you and, and see where you're at anything you want to add to today's episode Jared before we finish up no I just uh, I, I want to invite people to come back for the next episode where we actually talk about dosing <laughs> yeah we will actually talk about dosing and then uh, we'll we'll get into more deep depths of neurodynamics and maybe dosing around more things than just neurodynamics. I think uh, we'll we'll tie this into kind of the patient symptom behavior model and how that might all connect the dots on how to better better dose with things. So until next time, you guys have a good rest of your day. We'll talk to you soon. This has been another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast with Dr. Mark Karchula. Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. Also, visit the Pain Masterminds Network on Facebook for free education and resources. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.